As we come now to God's Word, I'll ask that you turn in your Bibles to Mark in chapter 10. That's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Uh, Open your app or uh, open your Bible or there's uh, Bibles there in the pews. We'll read just a few verses here, but before we do, would you please pray with me? Our God, we know that we have no strength on our own, no wisdom on our own, which means that as we come to your word, we need your help. We need you to guide us, to really sink this down deep in our hearts, to help us to see and believe what you've said is true. In the end, would you produce in us worship? Help us now to see you in your word. Guide us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mark chapter 10. We'll start in verse 32. And they, the they there is Jesus and his disciples, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is God's word. It's just a short passage, three verses. And if it sounds familiar, that's because we've heard it before. If you've been with us, you know, we're reading through the book of Mark. We're nearing the end now as we're in chapter 10. And this is now the third time that Jesus has foretold his own death and resurrection. The first time we heard it, at least explicitly, was in chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then Jesus says the same thing in chapter 9 and verse 31. He says, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. And now here he said it for the third time explicitly, I will be killed, and in three days I will rise. Here, this third time, is where he's most specific about what's about to happen. So here he's included details like this is going to ha- we're going up to Jerusalem and that's the place in which this is going to happen. Here's where he starts to involve the Gentiles in the process. Here's where he talks about how he'll be mocked, spat upon, and flogged. And some of this, some of these foretellings lead some to say that what Mark writes here was written after the event. It was written after the event, but but that there's no way Jesus could have known this beforehand. So some will say, okay, Mark now watches the process of what has happened to Jesus, and then afterward, after Jesus has died and been resurrected, he goes back and puts into Jesus' mouth these details foretelling his own death and resurrection. Some will say that, 
But you'll notice in the text that Jesus is not just foretelling his death, but he's foretelling his resurrection. And that's normal to us because as Christians, we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus all the time. But if you pause to think about it, that's really a strange thing to be discussing. I mean, people don't often talk about their resurrections just off the cuff. And if it is true that Jesus was raised, why would it be so impossible for him to know about it beforehand? Knowing about it beforehand is such a small thing in comparison to the act of raising one's self from the dead. This sort of argument is what the Pharisees and the council after Jesus' resurrection in Acts chapter 5 are getting at here. So here, some of the Pharisees have gathered. These are not believers who trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, but they're trying to address the situation that they're facing in which the disciples are saying all of this about Jesus who died and was resurrected. And what do we do about Peter and all those who are now spreading this? So this comes from Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave them orders to put the men outside for a while. So now, listen, we're just going to talk as a council. Verse 35, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men, the disciples. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean, different than the Judas we know, different guy, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you this, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. In other words, here's what he's just said. This leader of the Pharisees has stood up and said, We've seen these messiahs before. We've seen people who came in and said they were something. We've seen people who were even so big and important that many followed after them. But then they died, and their followers were scattered, and nothing came of it. So he says, just leave this situation with Jesus alone. Let it run its course. Jesus has died. And if his situation was of man, it's going to fade away on its own. But if it's of God, you won't be able to stop it. And now, here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about it. If nothing else, that should cause us to pause, cause a skeptic to go, there's at least something in here worth looking at because Jesus is unlike the many others who were great men who had great followers and then drifted away. So now, as we look at this particular text, we want to go, what in here should we look at? And this 
Sunday. I want to focus us on one word. Hmm. We'll see how this goes, right? One word. Uh, It shows up twice in verse 33 in Mark's text in chapter 10. The word here is delivered. I'll read the whole verse. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Some translation translate this, handed over or betrayed. I think delivered is best for our purposes. And you'll notice in the context, there, this is something that's delivered to, not delivered from. Sometimes in the scripture, we're, it talks about things that we're delivered from. We're delivered from sin by the power of Jesus. We're delivered from death. We're delivered from evil. We're delivered from enemies. But here, someone, something is being delivered to. So we can think of this like a package. I love getting packages in the mail, especially when it's not Christmas. Even if I ordered it, you know, there's something, it feels like Christmas, right? Something shows up at your door, and, an, and, and in our place, it's very dusty because they've been driving the dusty roads and things, but there's a package there. Even if I know what it is, it feels special. There's something that's been delivered to me. Uh, so we're going to think of it like that. The thing here that is delivered is Jesus. It's Christ himself that's being delivered. He's the package. He's what's in the box. And ultimately, the destination to which he's being delivered is to death. He'll go through death and then into resurrection, but he's being delivered over to death. So now the question for us this morning is this. Who is delivering Jesus to death? Who's delivering Jesus to death? In essence, who's the one who's writing on the address label and sending the package? And why do they do it? So let's look at the text. As we ask this, who delivered Jesus to death? There are actually three answers to that that we'll focus on this morning. The first, you can see at the end of 33, is the Jews. It says, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, the Jewish leaders there, and they're going to condemn him to death, and they're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles. The they there is the chief priests and the the scribes as representatives of the Jewish people. Now, as soon as I say that, I want to be clear. We are not being anti-Semitic here. We're not anti-Jews. And it doesn't absolve blame from the Gentiles or the non-Jews. In fact, At the end of this, the one who were doing the harsh stuff, the mocking, the spitting, the flogging, the killing, literally the ones who were doing that are the Gentiles. So there's plenty of blame to go around then for the death of Jesus. And we know that at this time, contextually, under Roman law, it was illegal for anyone but the Roman court to condemn someone to death. So if the Jews thought someone deserved to die, they could not condemn them on their own. They had to hand them over to the Gentiles to be condemned to death. And yet, in all of this, Scripture seems to lean into this emphasis that the Jews are the ones delivering Jesus over to death. The council of the Pharisees, Judas, who was a Jew himself, and then in 1 Thessalonians 2, Peter himself pulls out how the Jews have done this. 
the reason why it's the Jews delivering him over is because Jesus was a Jew himself. He was part of them. And so they had right to, to, you know, sort of hand him over. And that's the reason why John in his beginning of his gospel says, Christ came to his own, which are the Jews, and his own did not receive him. Instead, they delivered him over to death. Now, why did the Jews deliver Jesus over to death? The answer to that, according to Mark's gospel, is complex. There's a lot of reasons why any of us do anything. One reason is envy. It says that specifically in chapter 15, that there's some greed in there, Judas and negotiating money, that there's some uh, religious system that the Pharisees are trying to maintain. In essence, all of that is trying to hold on to our own pride and power. But the reason at the end, when Jesus is at his final trial, the reason that's explicitly said of why they deliver him over to death, you may already know this, is blasphemy. Jesus is delivered over to death for blasphemy because Jesus said he was equal with God, that he is one with the Father. And according to Jewish law, according to Leviticus, a person who does that should be condemned to die. That package needs to be addressed to death. That sounds odd to us because in some ways we hold that lightly. If someone takes the name of God and throws it around, we're more used to hearing that sort of thing, and so we don't take it as seriously, but really blasphemy is high treason against God. It's defaming his holiness. And legally, this was the right thing to do to deliver him to death unless Jesus was telling the truth. Unless when he said, I am one with the Father, that that was really the case. Unless when he said, I will rise from the dead, that was really the case, then it's not blasphemy, then it's truth. But that poses a problem for us. Here's why. Because if it is true that Jesus really is one with God, that makes the next part very difficult with us. Because we're asking this question, who delivered Jesus over to death? And we said the first, there's three answers here. The first answer is the Jews, but it's more than just the Jews, and we're going to have to look at other scriptures to to kind of round this out, so stick your finger in Mark. We're going to go other places, or tag your little bookmark on it. I don't know how all the apps work, but, but make a note there. We're going to go other places. We'll come back to Mark in a second, but our question here is, who delivered him over to death, to death the Jews, and who? Uh, turn to Acts chapter 2. This will help us. Just a couple verses here. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. This is in the middle of uh, Peter's sermon. This is after Jesus had died and been resurrected and returned to the Father. Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth... A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered 
up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you hear it in there? Who delivered Jesus up to death? In verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God the Father delivered Jesus to death. Why? There's many reasons why he did this. At the end of Peter's sermon here, you can see down in 36, here's the the end of the sermon, the punchline. He says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In essence, Jesus, or God the Father, delivered Jesus over to death to make Christ Lord of all. Lord of everything, including death itself. And this lordship does something that's lived out in a particular way. Romans 8, I told you, we'll be journeying a bit here. Romans 8, just a few verses here as we round out. Why did the Father deliver Jesus over to death? Paul writes this in Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, this is the Father, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up or delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You can hear this in verse 32. He delivered Jesus up for us to give us all things, especially his love. You can see it at the end of this text in 37. This is Paul's punchline here. No, in all of these things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, the Father delivered Jesus up to die to, one, make him Lord of all, and two, to make his love inseparable to us. That even death itself would not be able to separate us from his love. Now, how does that happen? One last uh, place here. Isaiah 53. I'll read just a few verses. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Mm. Some translations say it pleased the Lord to, tr- to crush him. He has put him, the him there is the suffering servant, which is Jesus. He has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Here's what we want. Out of the anguish, anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. So the writer here is talking about how Jesus, this suffering servant, 
will satisfy. That's the language used. And when we think about that as a context, that at the end of a good meal, you know, you sit back and go, ah, maybe even unbutton a button. You're just satisfied. Hopefully you didn't eat too much. At the end of the long system of paying off your house, you've got that huge debt that you pay like bit to bit to bit, and maybe it's overwhelming. But if you can get to that last payment and you write that last check and you put it in the mail and you go, ah, that payment is satisfied. It's done. It's complete. So from this, we know that sin merits the wrath of God. It also hurts us. We hurt each other. But in essence, that's really the big offense. We've offended a holy God and therefore are under his wrath. That's not because God is mean or nasty, but because God is righteous and holy. And that debt of sin, that payment of wrath must be satisfied. And so instead of delivering us to death, instead of delivering us over to wrath, the Father delivers his Son over to death. He delivers his Son over to wrath. And at the end of this, it says that Jesus takes that iniquity, that sin to the grave, and then he's raised for our righteousness. So the Father has delivered over the Son in order to make us righteous in his sight. We can pull all of this together. Then the Father has delivered Christ over to death to make Christ Lord of all, to make Christ's love inseparable to us, and then to make us righteous in his presence. If we pause to think about that, That's really everything for a believer. It's everything. Because that means that all sin has been paid. All of a believer's sin is paid. That debt is satisfied by Jesus. That last check on the mortgage has been written. The last bite has been eaten. That sin has been taken to the grave. And even though Jesus was raised and reigns over the grave itself, he leaves sin and its power in the grave. In essence, there is no return address on that package. It ain't coming back. I don't know how that feels for you, but for me, there's freedom in that. Because I know that I'll continue to sin. I'll continue to wrestle even in holiness and make mistakes and offend my wife, my family, my church. But there's hope here. There's rest. There's comfort here that Christ, by his death, satisfies the payment for sin. That's why the Father did it. Now, as we're asking this question, who delivered Jesus over to death, we've said now that On one hand, it was Jews or men have delivered Jesus over to death, and then the Father has delivered him over to death. But I said there were three answers to this. Because if it's only these first two, that men have delivered Jesus to death and the Father have delivered Jesus over to death, it begins to feel like this to us. And maybe you understand 
this feeling or you have felt it yourself, that Jesus begins to feel like a, like a baseball card that just kind of gets traded away or pushed around, or maybe a better example is a pawn on a chessboard that somebody else is just kind of pushing him around and moving him, and, and maybe it's even a sacrifice move that you take the little pawn and, and you know that the queen's gonna, gonna take the pawn and kill the pawn in, in chess. Uh, but that's all right, because I'm using it for my greater purposes. Jesus just feels like he's a, a pawn to be traded or pushed around, and on some level that can seem harsh or even cruel of the Father to do such a thing. But as I said before, there's a third answer to the question of who delivered Jesus over to death, Galatians 2. See if you can hear it as I read this, just a single verse. Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul writes this. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you hear the answer in there at the end? The Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus delivered himself over to death. And the reason he did it in this text was because he loved me. That he loved us. And not just love for us, but also love for the Father and obedience to his will. And so out of love then, Jesus signs his own name over to death. The clearest part of scripture that talks about this is John chapter 10. It's the last place we'll go, and then we'll get back to Mark. This is when Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. He says this in John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came so that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'll skip down verse 18. He says this, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Mm. I love that line. Jesus here says, this is my life, and I'm the one laying it down. I do it because it's my decision, because I am good, because I'm going to bring abundant life, but I do all of this by my own authority. So Jesus is not obligated then to die. He's not being coerced, bullied, wrestled, forced, guilted, or backed into a corner to do it. Jesus is signing the package over to death by his own hand, willingly with his own signature. So when we're back in Mark with what he's foretelling about what's to happen, it's not just that he's going, oh, this is going to happen. You know, there's some, when we get to him in the garden, we'll see this in coming chapters, there's some part of this that's very difficult for him. And yet he continues to do it willingly, all of it, 
So as we see in, in verse 33 in, in Mark, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. That's by my own signature, says Jesus. They'll condemn him to death by my own signature, and they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles by my own signature, and they will mock him by my signature, and they'll spit on him by my signature, and they'll flog him by my signature, and they'll kill him by my signature, and then after three days, he will rise by my own signature, and this Jesus will bring abundant life by my own signature. All of these things help us to see Jesus as he really is. Because in his deliverance, Jesus is simultaneously two things. He's more than this, but at least two things. Then on one hand, he is self-sacrificing. He does all of this willingly. And while he's self-sacrificing, he is also extremely powerful that he does all of it, even death by his own authority. And we need God to be both of those things. Because if we have a God that's only self-sacrificing but not powerful, that turns God into something more like a social worker. I love social workers. My wife is one. I've lived in that world for a while myself. But a social worker might want to do good, but there's only so much they can do. We tried our best but our resources are limited. That's what happens if we don't have a God who's powerful. But on the flip side, if we have a God who's only powerful but not self-sacrificing, our God becomes something more like the Greek gods in Greek mythology, that they kind of use humans as toys, that they kind of play with humanity for their own amusement without a human's good in mind. But our God is both self-sacrificing and powerful. And as we think about the implications for us then of this, it impacts how we live our lives, the decisions we make, but I just want to sit for a moment then. If we sit at Jesus' feet at this, whatever circumstance you are facing, what does it mean for us then that Jesus is both self-sacrificing and powerful. That as you're trying to raise an infant child, what does it mean for us that Jesus is both self-sacrificing and powerful? That when we're facing significant wrestlings at work and at school, what does it mean for us that Jesus is both self-sacrificing and powerful? And as we start to think about the end-of-life issues and writing our will and thinking about burial and those sorts of things. What does it mean for us that Jesus is both self-sacrificing and powerful? We know then that as Christians, when we turn to him for help and for hope and for life, this is what we see. A God who is self-sacrificing and powerful, and this will do something to us not only externally, but also internally. Actually, this, I think, helps us to understand what's happening at the beginning of this text in Mark. When we look at verse 32, here's what's happening at the text that we read today. And they, this is a bunch of the disciples, are going on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking 
ahead of them. I love that. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. That's interesting to me. Why does Mark point that out? It says that the disciples, they're, they're, Jesus is walking toward Jerusalem, and they're kind of following after him, and it just says, and they were amazed and afraid. Those are common responses in the Gospels. We often see people who are amazed and afraid when they have contact with God. But what's interesting here is there's usually a reason named, like Jesus casts out a demon, and whoa, we're amazed and afraid. Or Jesus teaches us something that you, you really, it's really wise and powerful, and people are amazed and afraid, or he heals someone, and the people are amazed and afraid, but here Jesus is just walking ahead of them, and it says they were amazed and afraid. Why? I think the disciples here are starting to get a glimpse of the fullness of Jesus. And I think we can understand that on some level. Uh, one writer pointed this out, that it's similar to meeting your own hero. So we all have various heroes, people that we maybe admire and, I don't know, in various places. C.S. Lewis, or for me, Ray Bradbury, or Dr. Seuss. Um, most of my heroes are, are, are dead now, but if I had the opportunity to meet them, you know, I get, I get a letter in the mail that says, C.S. Lewis wants you to have dinner with him. You know, I, I'd be thrilled about that. But I think I would be, you know, pretty, pretty nervous, excited, but kind of shaky about it. I, I, I might be amazed and afraid. Now, the reason for that, we, we call this hero worship. Heard that term before? It's the, the experience to be amazed and afraid is because of hero worship. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that term is really fitting for Jesus. Because here, then, is the God that we worship. A God who is both self-sacrificing and powerful, this Jesus who is delivered by men, delivered by the Father, and even delivered by, him own, by his own self over to death. But in three days will be raised again in power. This is our God. Would you please pray with me? Hmm. Lord, thank you for your word. We long to know you deeper, more truly, more fully, in a way that as we come closer to you, as we see more the fullness of you, that we would in some ways be amazed and afraid, that we would see your power and at the same time see your self-sacrifice for us because you love us. Help us, then, to follow after you. You are a good God, and we, we give you all praise and all thanks. In, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.